Welcome. Good to have you uh, join us this morning. We're going to be considering used things for the start of this morning. The idea that most things break down and get worse over time, but not all things. Uh, If you want to be joining in on the conversation and post some comments, you need to be logged into your YouTube account or create a YouTube account. Uh, so here's, here's, your, here's your post assignment for this morning. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do it. I'll read some of these and we'll kind of see how this goes. Uh, but I want you to think about what items, physical items, get better the more they are used. So what items get better the more they are used? And I don't want you to go with wine or cheese. Think about it. Those get better with time, but not with use, Right? Keep your used cheese, please. That's not something that gets better after it gets used. So what items get better the more they are used? Like some of you, I really enjoy uh, buying used. It's something really fun for me. I I think I just enjoy the hunt. Um, I get more for less, which is good because I'm a preacher in the Silicon Valley on one income, and I'm not a televangelist, so we need to stretch our dollars. Um, But I think I also find pleasure in seeing the life in stuff that others have either missed or just sort of discarded. Uh, I have a daughter that shares a love for this. And on a recent trip, we we took a special road trip. And on a recent trip, we spent some time in secondhand stores hunting around. That was part of our thing. And I found this little beauty right here. Now, this is something that I've been hunting for for a while. I had one of these in my Amazon cart. Some of you have no idea what it is. If you envision a bunch of bananas and how this could serve that to uh, elongate the life of banana, then you can kind of start to figure it out. I found this little beauty at a, uh, at a secondhand store near Pismo Beach. And here's what's great about it. It costs me very little and serves me very well in my office to keep my bananas happy and healthy. And furthermore, when I look at it, it has this little memory attached to it. I remember this really great road trip I took with my daughter. Use things. How about things that... Uh, that get better with time. Let's, let's read some of these. Um, a baseball mitt. Yeah, for sure. Uh, a garden. Hats. Some shoes. Not all shoes. We have to clarify that. Jeans. Disc golf disc. I wonder who put that one. Um, a book. I found a book in my backyard, rain-soaked. Uh, so that might be true. Um, cast iron skillet. Handwriting. These are some good answers. I like those. Uh, Some of you uh, own Birkenstocks. Some of you own them the first time around. Uh, I own them probably in the second wave, and they're now back again. That certainly is one of those items that that comes to mind. All of these things, even the things that you're posting right now, these things that settle in and actually get really good. Think about a well-made guitar, right? That gets better with use, but all the stuff we're typing in still has a shelf life. It still breaks down at some point. Here's the big idea I'm driving towards is this, that using things breaks things, and using people breaks people. We're working our way through the gospel of Luke, and Dr. Luke is writing about Jesus, and like a good doctor, Jesus masterfully diagnoses our pain and brings healing to our brokenness. Dr. Jesus is giving us timeless truth today about everyday concerns that confront us and confuse us even today. Here are two big ideas I want you to grab hold of. Uh, He confronts our relationship to money and things, 
And he discusses and confronts our relationship to God and to other people. I want you to turn, click, or tap, however you're using Scripture this morning, over to Proverbs chapter 4. We're starting in Proverbs 4. We'll get to Luke 16 momentarily. The title this morning is Guard Your Loves. And the simple idea that we are to love God and people, and we are to use money and things. Guard your loves because all of your loves flow from your heart, and everything flows from your heart. This is not profound. This idea of loving God and people and using things and not getting those inverted is not new and it's not profound, and yet here we are. We sit realizing there's a lot of junk in our life. I wonder how much junk would completely disappear if we just got this right. Um, You know, uh, Proverbs tells us uh, to guard our hearts. Above everything else, guard your heart. Guard it diligently. Why does it tell us that? It tells us that because we have an enemy of our soul, and it tells us that because of this. All of your issues ultimately are heart issues. All of your issues are heart issues. When I was going through college, I put my way through college in part by being a bank teller. And as I was a bank teller, I used to have people that would come in, and they were renting safe deposit boxes. And it was a big to-do. Uh, they had to fill things out. We both had a key. It looked like the nuclear launch code. And people would go in. They would pull out their safe deposit box, and they would get their stuff. And I remember sitting there as a college student thinking, who goes through the trouble of paying money to store something in this little box and then has to go through the inconvenience of all of this just to access it? Now, mind you, I was a college student, and the most expensive thing I owned at the time was a 1971 lime green Ford Pinto and an old surfboard. So uh, it was lost on me. Uh, but, but most people with their heart learn the hard way, that their heart is worth guarding and that their heart needs guarding. Consider the way that we use the heart in modern-day vernacular. Much wisdom of our day holds us captive to the heart. These ideas that we follow our heart, we go with our heart. We say things like this, I fell in love. Often on the back end of love, we say, I don't know, I just fell into love. Like the the gravity of love just pulled us in there and it just happened to us. Now, The Bachelor is a mega hit show that I hope you can proudly say that you have never watched. But currently, it's advertising this. I saw this come across my screen, and when you're married to a preacher, you get the sermon all week long, and probably about Tuesday, I'm like, there it is. That's what we're seeing. This advertisement came on. The newest iteration of The Bachelor is listen to your heart. And, uh, and this tied right into what I was thinking about for this week. Now, please don't comment in on The Bachelor. That's not really the point of this. Here's the point of this. The Bachelor says, listen to your heart. The Bible says, talk to your heart. Much of the world's wisdom would say, follow your heart. God tells us to steer our heart. In pop culture, we hear songs like this. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. The very next day, you gave it away. Kind of foolish. God says this, trust me with with your heart. Christmas tells you I'm always here for you and will never give it away. Here is God's word on the matter. Proverbs twenty eight twenty six. this is a tiny smattering to get us going. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. 
And listen to the gospel built into uh, David as he repents of sin. 50, Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know, heart health is really important the older you get. We don't think about it much when we're young. We happen to have three children that have heart issues, so it's, it's a huge topic in our home, and, and we, we, we look at heart health pretty, uh, pretty uh, stringently. With your physical heart, depending on what your issue might be, there's diet and exercise and medication. Certainly there's monitoring that goes on if people have heart issues. So how do you keep your inner heart healthy? How do you keep your inner heart healthy? There's sort of a new uniform going on in our, in our city, if you'll notice it. There's a, a little mask, there's rubber gloves on, and you have the sweet smell of antibacterial uh, lotion stuff, sanitizer floating around. And, and I think all of us are wondering, day by day we're learning more, I get it, but all of us are wondering, is this working? Is this enough? And we have a sense we should do something, but is this really keeping us safe? Is this keeping us uh, uh, from, from getting this flu? We don't know yet completely, but we know that we should do something, and we know that this seems kind of feeble when our life is at stake. How about our heart? All of the advice, horoscopes, friends, experts feels sometimes like a mask and rubber gloves and Purell. We feel like we should do something, but we wonder if it's enough, and if it's our heart at stake, if it's our very life at stake, we, we want to have a stronger sense of security. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. All your issues are heart issues. Now, we tend to think in the West with head and heart being opposed to each other. Did I think with my head or did I think with my heart? We're, we're talking about reason versus feeling, right? And in the Bible, it's not that way. In the Bible, the heart is not just the seat of the emotion, but it actually in, in, in encapsulates the entire person. The heart is the seat of your deepest trust, your deepest commitments and loves from which everything flows. Look at verse 23 in Proverbs 4. It goes on to say this. It says, keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. The heart is the control center, but the mouth and the eyes and the feet all influence the heart. By the way, those are all connected to a mind, which other passages bring that in. So here's the point. We guard our hearts by steering them toward God. It's not as mystical as you may think. What your lips say, what your mind thinks about, where your feet go, all of those are actions that orient to God or orient away from God. We guard our hearts by steering them toward God, a heart given over to God that's been recreated, renewed, redeemed, in fact, reborn by God himself, is a heart that leads us to life. God is the one who gives us a new heart. It's been gifted to us. That's the whole message of the gospel. That's grace. No one earns it. Now listen to how we guard and steer our heart. Just a few verses to get us started. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 73, my, heart, my, my health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. 
I am my beloved's and he is his. John 14 says this, Jesus talking to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you hear how we talk to our heart, we steer our heart, we allow God to keep hold of our heart? So much talk about the heart because Jesus today in this passage is addressing the heart sickness of people. In short, he's saying to Pharisees who were lovers of money, and when they heard Jesus talking, they ridiculed him. What we're going to see Jesus is, is get to the heart of the matter. So guard your loves. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus is talking about money and possessions. And he taught us, uh, last week we looked at this, he taught us to be shrewd and not naive. Jesus wants to redeem your shrewdness or he wants to cultivate shrewdness. Do you ever think about the fact that if he wants us to be shrewd, it must mean that he was perfectly shrewd? I pray that you've been seeing the shrewdness of Jesus in a new light this week. That what we see is his ability to outwit, outlast, and outplay everyone else in the name of love is a powerful model to follow. Here's just a couple examples that came to my mind. Consider Jesus in the desert being tempted by the enemy. Why did Jesus come to him alone? Why did Jesus come to him when he was weak and hungry and thirsty? Because he's shrewd. But what does Jesus do? He outshrews his shrewd enemy, right? Here's another one. When he's asked about whether he should, be, he should pay taxes, he was being tested. And what does Jesus do? He, he gets a coin and he says, whose inscription is on this coin? Of course, that was Caesar's. And he says this, give back to Caesar what's his, And give to God, you image bearer, that which is God's. He silences shrewd enemies who seek to trap him by using just the right amount of force in just the right way, in just the right smarts to be able to flip the script. He doesn't just use shrewdness on his enemies, though. Consider people who come to him for healing. He could have done it a myriad of ways, but here's just two examples. He's with the woman at the well. He says, go and get your husband. I won't fill in the rest, but think of how shrewd that was at teasing out her heart issue. He's in a crowd, and a woman comes up, sneaks up, and she touches him. She's ashamed. She feels her healing, but she's not healed in her personal social status yet. She's still ashamed. She slinks away. What does Jesus do? He shrewdly turns, and he says this, who touched me? He did that because he's shrewd. He wanted to restore all of her, not just her physical healing. Over and over and over, Rick Lawrence wrote a book called Shrewd, which would have been really helpful in my prep. I forgot that I had read that book, but it's a great book. And he calls Jesus the sensei of shrewd. I love that. So he turns here from teaching his disciples, that's last week, and he turns his attention to his mockers who have sick hearts. After a parable, Jesus gives this straightforward teaching on the relationship to money and stuff. This is the end of our passage last week that we really didn't spend too much time on. Picking up Luke 16 in verse 10. Here we go. It says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And now this, very next verse, 14, our passage today. We're just covering five verses. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, 
You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries another woman, uh, he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Guard your loves. Your very life depends on it. Proverbs 25 Proverbs 20, verse 5, says this. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Think about like deep water. There are things hidden in our hearts that influence us that we don't even know are there. There are also things we put deep in our hearts to hide them from other people, and we think no one else will ever find these things out deep in our heart. But a man of understanding, and Jesus fits the bill for that, a man of understanding will draw out those deep hidden things. Why? Because all issues are heart issues. The Pharisees, if you're new to the program, are the religious leaders. They're sort of like the religious rule keepers. And they had a lot of power in this society and in the sort of ancient Near East culture. And the Pharisees had a sick relationship with money. They also had a sick relationship with God, and they had a sick relationship with other people. It was toxic to their own soul, and because of their position of authority and their position of trust, it was actually toxic to the whole community. What I want to do this morning is this. I want to give you five pictures, sort of a a, a character study on heart-sick heretics, Heartsick heretics. And I use that term in a very technical sense, which we'll, we'll look at in one second. But I do this because this is the way Jesus approaches it. He's exposing what's going on with the Pharisees. So we're going to look at it in the negative, which is the way the scriptures are, are doing it. So what's a heretic? A heretic is a person believing in or practicing religious heresy. That may not be that helpful. You say, what's heresy? Heresy is an opinion or belief that is profoundly at odds with doctrine. What's doctrine? Well, a doctrine is a set of beliefs that, that we are called to live by and preach. Essentially, it is the truth. Listen to this from Titus chapter 2, an older pastor preaching to a younger pastor and giving him instruction. He says this, but as for you, teach, that which, what, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Make sure your teaching is lined up with the truth. So what's the fundamental heresy going on in the lives of the Pharisees? It's loving money and using God, right? So it's exactly opposite of what we're called to do. What is the way of life? It's loving God, and out of that flows everything else. And what happens is we end up using money, not loving money. So the Pharisees, in essence, are about as opposite of a direction as what God would be calling us to. Instead of loving God and using money, they are loving money and using God even to, uh, to fix themselves up even better. Looking at what Jesus confronts in them is really instructive for us today. Maybe some of us in this room or this viewing space have a sick relationship with money. 
We would say, man, we, we, we know that to be true. It's, it's ruined a marriage. It's, it's, it's been a problem with jobs. It's, it's been something that I haven't been able to get a handle on. I want you to listen carefully that we guard our loves and that there's instruction for us, that God wants to pull us out of that. So if you're following along, if you're taking notes, you can, you can jot these things down. The, the format we're going to use is this, that heartsick heretics dot, dot, dot. So number one is this, heartsick heretics believe their own hype. Love of money is, is tied to, being, to, to, to the love of being noticed. So, so think about it today. Love of money is tied to the love of other people noticing that you have money. Think about it, a giant um, gold dollar sign that I wear around my neck and it sort of hits me and all that. Think about you know 18 carat uh, grills that I might be wearing. I don't wear these things for comfort. They're not all that useful. What am I doing? I am projecting the fact that I can afford these kinds of things. So love of money is tied to love of being noticed. Uh, these people, these Pharisees, wanted to look good before others. They poured their energy into image instead of pouring their energy into loving service, which is why leaders are raised up. Jesus says, you justify yourselves before men. How did they do that? Well, in part, they, they perpetuated the common knowledge of the day, which was off, that wealth must mean favor from God. Those who are wealthiest and healthiest must mean that God favors them the most. Not only did the Pharisees not do anything to dissuade or teach or, or correct that false teaching, they actually perpetuated that myth by playing the game. Now, greed was certainly a factor, but remember, Eastern cultures today, just like it was in Jesus' time, a Near East culture, ancient culture, honor and shame are the economy. So greed was there, but, but, but there was this underlying thing of, of honor and status that came from the love of money. Now, whether we like it or not, one's own mouth and body acts out what's in the heart. We can't even help it. Over time, our body and our mouth speak what's in the heart. And what came out of their heart? Ridicule and mocking. When Jesus said these things, there was probably eye rolls. There was, yeah, right. So that's what's pouring out of them. Here's number two. Heartsick heretics forget their own history. God knows the heart. God knew the hearts of people then. God knows the hearts of people today. Believing your own hype blinds you to this truth and makes you forgetful. We believe that if we can trick other people who don't know the depths of our heart, that we're somehow tricking God, and it makes us forgetful to our own history. What's the history of Pharisees? It's in the Old Testament, right? And they knew their Bibles very, very, very well. In 1 Samuel 16, their greatest king, King David, is being chosen. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance. Who was David? He was the runt of the litter. They didn't even call him in to be checked out because he was probably not going to be the king in their estimation. It says, do not look at his appearance, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We know this to be true in the stillness of our soul as we're laying in bed at night. God sees the heart. We can fool other people, but God sees the heart. It must be a little bit like playing hide-and-go-seek with preschoolers where they, they think that, you know, I'm hidden now and we're kind of thinking, I can still see you. Doesn't matter if it's metaphorical fig leaves or actual fig leaves. You're not hidden from me. I created you. I see you. I know your heart. In the Old Testament, there was Achan 
There was Balaam. We have the privilege of getting to read the New Testament so we could think of the, the rich young ruler. We could think of Judas Iscariot. That's some of our biblical history. We could go all through our own uh, personal history and world history and see the same thing. History tells us that money is a terrible God and a cruel taskmaster. Every one of us has a choice to pursue eternal riches or temporary riches. Most people who say I have money problems think that the answer is, wait for it, more money. But people who have money problems, thinking that more money solves it usually is not the case. All issues are heart issues. So money problems don't go away once you have enough. Why? Because the heart sick person never has enough. When will it ever be enough? And it doesn't change where your hope is, where your dreams are. Number three, heart sick heretics use God knows my heart as a way to excuse sin. The Pharisees are so blind and prideful, it never dawns on them that they should be terrified that God knows their heart. You know, it's so common to hear people in self-justifying say to another, well, God knows my heart. He'll be the judge. And so often what's happening is they're excusing their sin. So often what they're having is they're saying, stop speaking into my life about this issue. God knows my heart. And instead of humbling themselves and being terrified of that, it turns into pride and self-justification. The advice of James would have been helpful for the Pharisees, which they couldn't get yet because he hadn't written it. But James 4, 6, James chapter 4, verse 6 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Think about this. The most dangerous sin in your life right now is the one that's hidden from you. The most dangerous sin in your life right now is the one you can't even see. It's the enemy that's attacking from the side. This is why community is so incredibly important. It's vital. God put us in a family to show us things that we can't see on our own. And family, don't shrink from your responsibility. You owe it to your brothers and sisters in love uh, to love them well enough to show him or her his fault, knowing that you have faults of your own. Rebuke and church discipline are for the safety and the care of the church. You know what Jesus is doing? Right here in this passage, he's modeling this. He's not calling these guys out to get a zinger and get back at them because he's hurt that he was ridiculed. He is calling out to them as a wake-up call. Two more. Here's number four. Heart-sick heretics miss the beauty all around them. When we are focused on image management, when we are focused on the folly of winning the approval of the crowd, which is really fickle, when we are stockpiling more and more wealth for ourselves, we are robbed of the great riches of the love and acceptance of God that are already ours. Heartsick heretics miss the beauty that is all around them. 
The good news of the kingdom was here, more so in front of their faces than at ever any time before. They were speaking to God, and they missed it. The gospel is beautiful and priceless. It's missed by those who make the terrible decision to worship at the altar of money and image. When it says in our passage, the law and the prophets, what Jesus is saying by the law and the prophets, that's code for the Old Testament. And this John that he mentions is John the Baptist. John the Baptist closed out the Old Testament prophets. And the baptism of Jesus was sort of a baton pass of sorts. It's like the Olympic torch coming, uh, coming to the host city, and Jesus is the last torch bearer. When the torch gets handed from John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, to Jesus, Jesus is the one who inaugurates this new kingdom. He literally lights this fire, and the kingdom of God is here. This age of grace, this gospel is now preached. And it's one continuous story, but this is a huge marker. And heart-sick heretics miss it. They miss this moment in history. They're living through it. Talk about being on the wrong side of history. Heart-sick heretics miss it. Why? Because they're too busy being offended by Jesus who won't play with their game. Jesus isn't tickling their hearts. Jesus isn't reinforcing what they are in love with. And so who becomes the most violent and vile enemy to them? It's Jesus. And we see that play out in the Gospels. I've sat with particularly men who have told me through tears that they wasted the young growing up years of their children. And how they long for a different choice to, be have, to, to, to have been made. Maybe they were chasing pleasure. Maybe they were running. Maybe they were pursuing the almighty dollar and the career. It's even more tragic for those who miss out on the beauty of the gracious offer of salvation. Going out to all people everywhere by God. Because our loves are on something else and we miss it. I've zipped through the first four because this last one hits on something a little bit heavier and there's a lot to it. Number five is this, heartsick heretics trade the truth for lies. Heartsick heretics trade the truth for lies. Worshiping anyone or anything but the one true God puts you in opposition to God because he won't share his glory with another. You esteem preach and promote that which is detestable to God. Verse 17 says this, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. We preach the Old Testament here. We preach the New Testament here. We look carefully, not just at at ideas coming out, but specific word structure. God has woven into the scripture an incredible miracle. And what Jesus is doing with this, with this line is he's affirming something that he's going to tell to some friends on the road to Emmaus after he rises from the dead. And it's this. He is affirming the fact that the whole of the Old Testament is about him. In fact, the scriptures are laid out this way. Genesis is the creation account. All the rest of the Old Testament points ahead to Jesus the Messiah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and and John record the events, the birth, life, miracles, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Then all of the New Testament is looking back on Jesus 
and describing and explaining, and then Revelation looks forward to his return. That's the scripture. I just took you through 52 books in about a minute. So Jesus is pointing out that all the Old Testament points to him, and it's not void. In fact, the Old Testament is not void once he shows up. It is fulfilled. The Old Testament doesn't sit there and say, that's the Old Testament. It actually now has life and color, rich new layers of meaning. Look at the Sermon on the Mount sometime where Jesus says, you've heard that it was written, but I say to you, he's not negating the Old Testament. He's giving color and framework to the law. He's actually correcting misheld beliefs about what the law was. So the Old Testament is, is, uh, is a continuous story of God. And then, as if to give an example of the law and the prophets, Jesus inserts uh, this, this idea of marriage and divorce and remarriage. So when you first read this, I, I just go, what on earth is that doing there? Why is that sitting there? Here's why that's sitting there. This is the flow of idea that says the, the law is not void. The law and the prophets are still alive and well. They're fulfilled in me. And then he brings up marriage and divorce as an illustration of that. What he says here in verse 18 basically repeats the teaching that he gives elsewhere. In fact, part of it in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. I'm not going to say everything there is to say about marriage and divorce in the few minutes I have left, but let me hit on a few ideas. Several years ago, there was a raging debate, and California was at the epicenter of it. There was a massive debate on what marriage is and who can get married. It's a huge cultural discussion. What happened is this. Religious leaders with a low view of the Bible, religious leaders with a low view of the Bible, championed what they felt, watch for it, in their heart. They championed what they thought was true in their heart. And they disregarded the clear teaching of Scripture. They disregarded the clear words of Jesus Christ as recorded in the Gospels. It's possible to think that we're helping God. We end up being more merciful and inclusive than He is. And it's all for Him. And it's all while celebrating things that He calls wicked. God made men male, or God made male and female. God invented and sanctioned marriage as between one man and one woman for all of time. When he was questioned about divorce, Jesus goes back to the creation account, and then he says this famous line that preachers don't come up with at marriage, they're just quoting Jesus. He says, What therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. Jesus had strong opposition to divorce, and that actually stands out in the ancient world. Jesus' strong anti-divorce stance actually defends and protects women. How? Number one, by renouncing an easy divorce culture which invariably favored men. Remember, this is a day and age where a woman's testimony in court wasn't even valid. She had zero voice, zero representation. Jesus' strong anti-divorce stance defends and protects women, secondly, by declaring that unlawful divorce and remarriage was a sin against the first wife. And finally, he's protecting and defending women by treating her actions as equally significant. We see that in Mark chapter 10, verse 12. Jesus is reaffirming what the story of Scripture says. 
This is nothing new. Sinful humanity has always, always, always had a low view of marriage. Sinful humanity has had a low view of marriage. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam says what? It's this woman you gave me, Lord. Right? Talk about blame shifting. How about Abraham and Isaac? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is, I mean, these are the, the, the pillars of the faith. Abraham and Isaac both threw their wives under the bus to save their own skin. They go into a foreign territory. They say, my wife's super hot. I'm going to tell people that she's my sister so I can stay alive. That's a low view of marriage. How about the ancient rabbis? The liberal voices of the day basically said this, divorce your wife if she lets you down. Even if she ruins a meal, that's grounds for divorce. If someone else captures your attention, that's grounds for divorce. Do you hear why Jesus is is very specifically calling that out? And then think about 1969 of our own culture. After the very misnamed summer of love, we, we brought something on our cultural scene called no fault divorce. And we live under this today. Sinful humanity has always had a low view of marriage. It's the fallout from the fall. Now, what I want you to do is this. I want you to think about why did Jesus, of all the different things he could have brought up, why does he bring up marriage and divorce? I think it's because of this. When you set it in the context of what he's talking about, all of Luke 16 is being a good steward of the the varied gifts that God entrusts you with. He's he's talking about money and relationships, and now he moves into the most intimate relationship ever. Your spouse is given to you by God as a precious gift. People who don't steward the worldly riches well, temporary riches well, will be unfaithful in stewarding true riches What are the worldly riches? Things that are temporal. It's all of our stuff. It's all of our possessions. It's all the stuff that's going to burn in the end. What are the true riches? Well, the things that last forever are the word of God, which never is void. We see that this morning. And the souls of people. So not stewarding these worldly things well is not being faithful in little. No matter how much money you have, it's it's a signpost that you won't be faithful in much, which is the relationships. So friends in TV land, computer land, guard your loves. Your very life depends on this. Without a new heart from God, it is impossible not to go astray. It is impossible not to remain sick. With God's healing power, with God's ongoing grace in our lives, your loves will lead you to life and truth. There is healing available in Jesus Christ. Guard your hearts and participate in the fight. This passage is a unique one that leads us uniquely into a different direction as well. Every single week, a part of our worship is to take up an offering, a collection of money, And we say this in different ways on different Sundays. And we're going to keep carving out time and space for this, um, even as as we're doing the services online. It's a regular part of our services. As we do this, I I close with Proverbs 3. Turn in your Bibles to, to Proverbs 3. And I want you to notice something. Proverbs 3 talks about all kinds of different obediences. 
But it starts that we obey from the heart. This is all over the scriptures as you start to have eyes to see it. If we have healthy relationship with God, it flows to dealing with our own heart and a healthy relationship to that. It flows into our relationships with other people, including our marriages, and it also goes to our relationship with money. There's probably no more common uh, broken relationship in our valley and no bigger tempter than to have a bad relationship with money and stuff. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1, listen to it. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Do you see it's not talking about let your emotions keep my commandments. It's saying with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything that you are, keep my commandments. Skip down to verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make, your, make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And then verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. All under the heading of keeping these commandments from the heart. It says, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. You know what doesn't work? Reading verse 10 and saying, I want things, I want my bank account bursting. So I'm going to try and honor the Lord with my wealth. Who sees that? God does. Playing hide and go seek with preschoolers. But if this is flowing from the heart, when we say from the front on Sunday morning, God loves a cheerful giver. Don't you dare give unless this is being given as an act of worship, not to get something from God, not to slot machine God. This is an act of worship because we love God. In fact, every single time that we give generously to the work of the Lord and what's going on, what we are saying is this, we are making a declaration about our true loves. So church, guard your heart. Right now as we sing, uh, there's opportunities and ways to give. Some of you have been mailing in. We check the mail every day so your checks that are coming in are safe. Uh, We will try to keep you informed. Aside from all the regular ministries that are going on um, that we're continuing to support, we will keep you informed about just um, the many varied needs uh, that are are there. Let me pray and then we'll get uh, some more singing going. Father in heaven, thank you so much for meeting us here this morning. God, thank you for uh, people who invented this technology. God, I thank you for how we can redeem the tools that are in our hands. God, I pray that you would help us guard our hearts. God, I pray for those who need to lay down their love of money um, and stuff and their own way of doing things. God, I pray that right now would be a holy moment. God, right now, would you meet people where they are at and God, help them to be freed and released from living a life that is loving things and money and using you and other people. God, in a moment, that miracle of new life can happen. I pray for uh, people, God, who, who maybe have been eating and drinking and being married, that they would take stock of their life, and they would do what James 4 says, that they would weep and wail and mourn and realize who they are and what they've been doing uh, in front of you, God. And that from that place of brokenness, God, you would wrap your arms of love around them. You would fill them with hope. God, you would give them a new heart. God, that seeks after you, that delights in you, that rejoices with the truth, that is part of the fellowship. God, we thank you for that gift. And we pray that for others. In Jesus' name, amen.
sorrow 